Hello, my friends. How are you? Welcome to 30 Albums for 30 Years. I am your host, Jay Sweet, and today I have the great pleasure of sharing with you my interview with legendary saxophonist and composer Joshua Redman. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Josh Redman, Redman gained widespread recognition in the 1990s, receiving critical acclaim. And he's collaborated with numerous jazz luminaries, showcasing his versatility and his innovative style. Redman, quite simply, is one of modern jazz's most influential and creative figures. So we lock into what I think was a, a very good conversation. Uh, in it, we talk about his new record, Where Are We?, his first for Blue Note, and also his upcoming performance at the Count Basie Center for the Arts, the Vogel Theater, on February 9th. That's in Red Bank, New Jersey. If you live in the area, be sure to check that out. And we also talk about his upbringing. Uh, Redmond's father was a famed jazz musician as well, Dewey Redmond, and a whole bunch of other things. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Josh Redmond. Please enjoy. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing all right. Yourself? Good, good. I'm Jay. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jay. I'm Josh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time, man. Um, if we could, I'd like to start with with talking about by talking about the album, um, which I think is fantastic. Uh, I want to commend you on a, a great, great record, man. Wow, thank you so much. I think it's your first record featuring a vocalist, if I'm if I'm correct. Absolutely, yes. It's the first record um, that uh, of my own or a collaborative record um, that that has had a vocalist on it. I guess I. I've, Played with vocalists over the years, not a lot. Um, not even sure if I ever did like a full set's worth of music, a full gig with a vocalist, probably when I first moved to New York. Um, but um, yeah, this is definitely um, kind of virgin territory for me. Um, yeah, and especially in terms of like one of my own projects, you know, I'm used to being the vocalist. I'm used to being the singer. I mean, not, I can't sing. No one ever, don't ever, <laughs> no one ever wants to hear me sing, trust me. But I try to sing through the horn. And, you know, as a, as an instrumental jazz musician, um, you know, and as a saxophone player and a, as a band leader, you know, I'm often kind of, uh, you know, up until now, I've been the prime melodic voice generally in the music. Um, and so I, I guess uh, I finally had the... Um, uh, I don't know what it what it what it is the 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 courage to uh to 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 relinquish that role or uh, um, yeah or just the wisdom to relinquish the role. <laughs> I mean, so how did that? I mean, how did it come about, and how did you hook up with with Gabrielle? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of an odd story. I mean, I guess all odd stories are. are, are I'm sorry, <laughs> it's kind of an odd story, and I guess uh, all stories are are odd in a in a certain way. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the circumstances uh, uh, under which this project um, kind of started to develop and then came to fruition were um, were unique. I mean, unique for all of us in the sense that, you know, that um, this, you know, this, this project kind of started during the pandemic. 
Um, you know, it, it it began at a time where I was basically doing nothing musically, or at least um, no actual making of music with other human beings for other human beings, um, you know, in, a, in, in, in one place at one time, you know, which for me is what music is all about, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess um, uh, it was probably, well, I guess it was in the fall of 2021 um, that um, that I kind of first started thinking about doing this. And um, I, I had had in the back of my mind for a long time, um, the idea, oh, it would be nice someday to do a, a record with a vocalist. But I think I, I think I kept it in the back of my mind. You know, I banished it to the back of my mind <laughs> for quite some time. Um, and maybe there was just something about like having so much time um, you know, to, you know, uh, so, so, so much time to kind of like think about music and think about all the things that I wish I were doing or could be doing, but, 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 um, but wasn't, you know, during the pandemic that maybe some stuff started to bubble up to the top a little bit. And, um, and so I guess this, this, this idea did really, really, um, I'm making a, a, a longer story of it than it needs to be. Really what happened was, um, I got a, a, a text from my manager, uh, Anne-Marie Wilkins. She was in New Orleans um, for some sort of social function. Um, or it might have been a fundraiser. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Uh, she does a lot of work down there. Um, but she was in New Orleans uh, at some kind of um, event. Uh, and it wasn't primarily a music event. Um, and she texted me out of the blue and she was like, I'm, I'm sitting here and there's this... Um, uh, vocalist performing and she's absolutely riveting and you've got to check her out. And uh, so I was like, okay, I don't generally get uh, calls or texts from my manager about, about music. She handles the business and I handle yep. the music. But, um, but I was, you know, I hadn't, I was like, okay, this sounds pretty serious and I'm at home and that's all I'm basically doing is checking music out. So I, I started to kind of check out Gabrielle's music and um, yeah, there's just something very, very, um, uh, uniquely um, uh, compelling and captivating about her um, her sound and her style and her expression. And I was kind of drawn into it. And um, then we started talking and decided we were going to do an album. So that's what happened. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, she is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then in terms of like the con, I mean, there's, there's a lot, a lot of first almost like I think first record for Blue Note, right? Definitely first record for Blue Note. And in fact, this this project, we we made this record. Well, I, I, was, I was kind of, it's the only record I've ever made that was kind of like, it was made independently of any label in the sense that it wasn't like I didn't, um, I was kind of moving out of my relationship with Nonesuch and, and you know, wasn't clear where I was going to be next. Um, but the timing was right to, to, to make this record. So we made it. Um, and then... Um, uh, Blue Note. You started talking to Blue Note and and Don Waz, and um, they were really excited and and interested in the record. So um, yeah, um, I, it's on Blue Note, and I'm on Blue Note, and I I couldn't be happier. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. And then like in terms of the concept, of, um, 
you know, another thing at play is like all the songs are about places, right? Places in the United States. Um, that's right. kind of the the conceit, the the little the not not particularly inspired concept. I mean, it's been done before. It's a little bit formulaic, obviously, honestly. Um, and, and originally the concept just kind of started as just a way. It was kind of you know I I we needed something to kind of focus our attention uh, and and kind of like maybe cut down on you know like like limit the options that we had because when Gabrielle when Gabrielle and I started talking about making music together we had never met we had never played together there's just so many songs you know there's so many songs out there right um, and so initially I was like I, let's just like let's 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 put some sort of concept on it so we can start to like make some choices. And I didn't necessarily um, believe that the concept was going to to hang around and still be there at the end, but it did. Um, and uh, and you know, al although I mean, I firmly be, firmly believe uh, that like uh, the the music is about the music, right? I mean, and each song should hopefully stand on its own as um you know hopefully a a compelling moving or at least you know intriguing um musical statement um you know there 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 is something about the way um all the all the music ties together and all the songs tie together uh conceptually and and intellectually and emotionally that yeah that it's part of what the record is right right and i think like um one of the one of the things that you did, which I found quite fascinating, I mean, Stars Fell on Alabama and to John Coltrane's Alabama. Um, and I mean, how did that concept come together? That's pretty brilliant the way the way it works together. Well, you know, once, yeah, when when we, when we had the concept that we were going to do songs about places in the United States, um, you know, cities or, or states or regions, um and you know we started picking songs and 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 there were a lot of songs that um how do you unpick them well there were there are a lot of obvious songs uh, you know song <laughs> and people are always like why didn't you do autumn in new york well we actually play autumn in new york uh, uh live sometimes you know i mean it was it was it was an interesting process to go through with with gabrielle like um you know deciding which songs we were gonna do and which we weren't and for her you know i, mean, I think the same is true for me um, but 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 um, but to an even greater degree for her, um, you know, it's all about like emotional connection and like she, you know, she might love a song, um, like deeply love a song, but feel like somehow she doesn't have. Um, I mean, I feel like I'm speaking for her and I shouldn't be, but like, but, but, but feel like she might deeply love the song, but feel like she doesn't have the 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 proper emotional relationship to the song whether it's through the the the, the lyrics of the song or the melody or the harmony or whatever um that to 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 sing it um so you know there were a lot of songs that we kind of looked at um that um yeah that 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 we decided weren't going to be right for this project but um stars fell on alabama was a a song we we kind of settled on fairly early on that would be a beautiful kind of classic romantic you know american songbook standard to do um, right. and it was really important to me if we were doing songs that were about america um to try to represent um 
I mean, there's no way to represent the totality of the American experience, you know, but but at least to try to, to represent some sort of range of experience and some sort of diversity of experience. And, you know, there are, you know, a lot of the um, the the classic, um, you know, standards that jazz musicians play, these American songbook tunes, these chestnuts, a lot of them, I mean, they, they talk about different things, but it's a very kind of, um, especially from our vantage point now, a very nostalgic, romanticized, um, you know, uh, kind of optimistic, even if it's if they're sad songs, it's a it's a romantic idealism uh, uh, um, that 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 is part of the American experience. Um, and that I think was especially celebrated during the, those the, the time those songs were written. And I love those songs. All most jazz musicians love them. You know, they're our bread and butter. But it was important for me that we didn't just represent that aspect of the American experience. Um, right. And so one of the things that obviously we're playing with, um, you know, conceptually is um, this juxtaposition uh, of kind of American, this American idealism and romanticism uh, versus uh, the reality of American life and some of the great hardships of American life and in particular, you know, some of the great injustices um, in American life for, for many Americans. So this was this was an idea I had early on. Once we decided we were going to do Stars Fell on Alabama, um, I did think of John Coltrane's Alabama, which is one of the great, um, I don't know if you could call it political statements, social justice statements in jazz. Right. You know, he wrote it as uh, in response to... Uh, um, uh, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, which was a huge, uh, a horrific moment, but a, a huge um, event in, in our nation's life. And it galvanized the civil rights movement in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so I, I, I had that idea of the, this juxtaposition, you know, this classic American, you know, antebellum, you know, Stars Fell in Alabama is about supposedly about like a meteor shower that I think happened in like, you know, 1840s or 1850s oh, wow. in, okay. in Alabama. And, you know, it's, it's a, again, you know, very, very romanticized, um, I mean, uh, what, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's kind, it's kind of a, representing a certain aspect of the American South and that experience. And, um, you know, I wanted to juxtapose that, put that in conversation with, um, you know, a very different, um, a very different experience uh, of the American South. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, just the heaviness of Coltrane's Alabama uh, against Stars Fell on Alabama is. Uh, yeah, I mean the heaviness of Coltrane's Alabama, just period. You know, I mean it's it's that's a song I I I I I've probably been listening to that. Uh, I mean, I don't remember the first time I heard it. My mom was a, a, a fairly big. Uh, lover, uh, as many pe people of her, of her generation, <laughs> as everyone, everyone loves John Coltrane, but, but there were a lot of, um, uh, not everyone, but there were a lot of Coltrane records in the house. He was one of the, the, the musicians that I, um, heard very, very early on. Love Supreme is one of the first records I can ever remember being conscious of as an album. And, uh, Alabama is on live at Birdland. It's not a live track but um but it is on that record and that was it's, it's something i've been listening to for a very long time and i had played it a few times solo uh in churches actually um but i had never played it i don't think i'd ever played it in a quartet setting 
before. Um, and it was somewhat daunting to just think about, oh, wait, we're going to play Alabama, you know, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a jazz quartet. Um, uh, but, uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I was able to to make this record with, um, you know, three of the greatest rhythm section players living today, Brian Blade and Joe Sanders and Aaron Parks, three of the greatest musicians living. And uh, yeah, we, 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 our approach to Alabama was kind of like, we didn't talk about it. We ran through it once in rehearsal just to make sure that I had transcribed it correctly, that the, I mean, there aren't a lot of chords, but the chords seem right, and and that we had a general sense of the song, uh, and uh, we played it. We we did a, a a couple gigs leading up to the recording. We might have played it at one of the gigs, and then in the studio, we we did it. We we did a take. We went back in and listened to it, and we were like, "Seems okay. Let's let's go with this," you know, because uh, otherwise it would just be this this rabbit hole, right? It's just like you know, if you start thinking about, "Oh my God, we're doing John, John Coltrane's Alabama, and are we worthy? And we'll never be worthy, and we have to make this so much, you know, our own." And you know, you, it's just like you can't win like that, right? Um, so we we you know we listened and we were like, "This this has substance, and it has." hopefully integrity and some honesty and and it feels like us and also captures some of the spirit of the song. So let's let it be. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Not to make this about myself, but the show that I do is a, is an evaluation of the albums from 1964 through 1994, 30 albums for every year. And of course we talk about Coltrane and we had a show on uh, live in Birdland. And, oh, you did? Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. I, as a guest, I had uh, Ashley Kahn who wrote about Lewis Porter, who a friend of mine, also came on the program to discuss it. So uh, it ties right in. And uh, I there's, I mean, I have a certain trust in your music that I know when you put something out, it's going to be, uh, you know, a strong effort. But when I see, when I'm I see, glad you, I'm glad you have that trust because I sure. <laughs> oh my! I, I mean, my like my 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 musical past is is just littered with bad choices oh, <laughs> in hindsight. But whatever, you know. At the time, I believed in them. So um... <laughs> I'd like to talk about that a little bit. But the the thing is, when I see a Coltrane song like in Alabama or something from Love Supreme, it's so it's so personal to so many people, right? Yeah. There's a certain like nervousness I almost yeah. get when I, when I see that. And, a Coltrane tune on a record because I'm such a huge fan. Sure. And uh, the fact, the way you handled it, I think you just, it, it's just, it captured, still captured that vibe and had your own take on it. And I just want to commend you for it because. Thank you so much. That means yeah, so much. It's really, really great. Uh, and then I, I would have to, I have to ask about this. because So I'm in New Jersey, about 10 minutes from where Springsteen grew up. Mm. Springsteen's yeah. like, uh, yeah. you know, he walks on water where right. we are. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, even though it's not a song about New Jersey, uh, Streets of Philadelphia, that the way you handled that, can you discuss how that arrangement came about? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would ever cover a Bruce Springsteen song, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I, I mean I, I, I've mean, always had the utmost love and respect for um Bruce Springsteen as a, as a musician and as a, as a, as a, um, uh, I mean, he's almost a statesman, right? I mean, but but like as a as a as a cultural force and icon, and you know what he what he's represented through his music and and 
um, you know, the way he's used his position to advocate for the things he's advocated for. And, and um, you know, he just, I, I, and, you know, I, I've always had the utmost respect and awe uh, for, for him. You know, I didn't, I honestly did not grow up like a, a huge, you know, I didn't grow up in New Jersey, right? Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm always like really liked and has respected his music, but, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that he's been one of my biggest influences from outside of jazz, you know, definitely not to the level uh, of say like, you know, the Beatles, like I liked a lot of classic rock, like the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin. And then like in terms of music of my time, it was like the police and, um, you know, hip hop and um, uh, Prince and Michael Jackson, you know, um, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. Okay. But um, the other thing is like Bruce Springsteen's music, like it just, it's not the first um, at, in terms of the ways the songs are constructed melodically and harmonically, it's maybe not the most obvious fodder and fuel for for jazz interpretation, um, you know. And um, so, it, you know, I don't know how this actually came about. I think that that when Gabrielle and I were talking about songs, and we we're just like, I, I think I like through it like it was almost an aside like uh oh well there's philadelphia we could do streets of philadelphia like a joke almost not 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 that it's not a great song i mean it's an iconic song right i mean i remember when that song came out you know uh, and i remember when that movie came out and what a big deal that was um but it was kind of like oh we're never going to do a bruce springsteen song um and she was somewhere i'm not sure exactly where and she was, uh, I think she was in her car somewhere like listening to music and she listened to the song and she like texted me. She was like, I'm in my car and I'm listening to Streets of Philadelphia and I'm crying and we should do the song, <laughs> you know? So there's like the emotional connection again, right? Like she felt something with the song. And so I was like, okay. And then I kind of went to work trying to find a way in which we might be able to, I don't want to say bring it into our world, not at all, but just find some sort of meeting place between the world of, you know, improvised acoustic jazz and the world of um, Bruce Springsteen. And in particular, like that, that Bruce Springsteen track is not even like, uh, as far as I know, it's, it's not really a, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of his music is like, him with the E Street Band, right? You know, it's like rock, right? You know, um, bass and drums and guitar, and you know, um, that is like, I think it's maybe a drum machine, and it's like keyboards, and you know, so it's kind yeah, of yeah. like it, it's not even it's even kind of a satellite in terms of his own over, right? So you know, it was it's a pretty big gulf, um, you know, uh, but uh, but I I actually feel like um, you know, it's just a great song and. It is also, um, I think it's a prime example of a song that I could have never done, that we could have never done without a vocalist. Yeah, like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't ever dream of playing this song without Gabrielle. I wouldn't, you know, there may be some others that we could, but not this one. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, it's actually one of the, the tracks that I feel is one of the more successful on the record, to be honest. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, so all the arrangements. So you came up with the arrangement concepts, or was it like a collaborative effort? Yeah, I mean, I did. I I, I did all the arrangements. I mean, I, you people won't see the, my my scare my air quotes now, you know. But uh, um, yeah, like arrangements in terms of like bass lines, and you know, there's some reharmonizations, and 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 uh, and yeah, the harmonies. Uh, you know, if the melodies change, you know, the bass lines, maybe a loose idea of like tempo and groove. Um, so yes, yeah, the arrangements were all mine. And then I brought them into the band. I mean, the one thing about, the one thing I, as an arranger, never in my life have I ever, or, or a composer, have I ever written a drum part, you know? And especially if you've got Brian Blade, you just don't write drum parts. You know? he's because like, he's going to, like like any i mean it's it's kind of a joke cuz like i when i when i um when i when I, when i i work i work out i i when i'm i work usually start arranging on on a on the keyboard or piano or whatever um the Wurlitzer, i got a little Wurlitzer back here and then at a certain point i'll i'll switch to sibelius and put in sibelius now and then sometimes i'll just like lay down like a, just a, 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 a you know some sort of beat but it's like the worst drum sounds and the worst, <laughs> no, it's like, you know, it's, it's worse than like the stock beats on like the old Casio tones. I don't think anyone's <laughs> what I'm talking about, but it's just like, they're so soulless and like mechanistic and just like cheesy, you know? And, 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 and sometimes I do it just so people could hear where one is, you know, or just like, but it, but it's like, if you heard like the beat that I put down for like, uh, that arrangement and then hear like what Brian and Joe do. It's just like um, they're completely different universes. So yes, I make the arrangements, but the but the arrangements mean nothing. If they're not, it's not music until it's played with the other musicians. And 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 the other musicians are the ones who make sense of it and bring it to life and and put put soul in it and make it music. So um yeah, I mean, there, there. It's, it's a, it's a real, real, it's jazz. It's a collaborative effort, um, all the way through. Right, right. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I think in doing this, um, so another thing, I, I teach a course on history of American music and wrote a book on it, and I'm trying to think. I was trying to think of another album where you have Charles Ives, Woody Guthrie, <laughs> Springsteen, Coltrane. I mean, really, the, the geniuses of American music, um, and the Great American Songbook, of course, you know pretty well represented in this 60 minute you know uh, like an hour long album when you put it that way that's like a lot of pressure i didn't even think <laughs> i mean yeah i mean actually charles yeah i mean charles ives is one of the great american composers right and you know yeah. arguably the, well, the greatest 20th century i mean you know he captured the spirit of our of our country yeah especially new england right especially a certain kind of yeah. like town life in 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 um at the turn of the century yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, to me, it was like, you know, there, there's there's so much of this record that's kind of like, I mean, it is the most, it is conceptual. It's the most conceptual record I've ever done. And and I'm I'm a musician who has always um, had a kind of healthy skepticism or distrust, mistrust of concept and especially if it's my own you know because i i want the concept of the music ultimately to be the music itself right sure. you know um but this is very conceptual and some of the some of the things you know like like the broad concept places in america but also some of these mashups it's just like oh 
well, here's a song about Chicago and here's another song about Chicago and let me put them together. Or here's, you know, this this song called New England from this Betty Carter record, um, a song that I had never heard that Gabrielle, I don't want to say she discovered, but she was like, let's do the song. I was like, I don't know what that song is. <laughs> you know, and then I'm like, oh, well, like, let me think of something else about New, about New England. Charles Ives wrote three places in New England. Let me go like steal some stuff from there, you know, and put it in an intro. It's just like so random, right? Like, and so right. conceptual in like a non-organic way. But the but the thing that I, I feel like I, I've learned, I mean, maybe this is justification after the fact, but I, like my, the 20 something Josh would be like, no way. Like it has to, everything has to come or even 30 something, like everything has to come from this like mysterious, like unknowable, um, you know, um, deeply soulful wellspring of in inspiration. So if it, so anything that's like a concept, that's like an idea, like that's kind of anathema because that's going to be, that's, that's something that's not coming from a true and real place. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, there's a part of me that still kind of believes that. Um, but one thing I have learned is that sometimes some starting with some sort of uh, analytical structure or concept, no matter how formulaic or seemingly um, uninspired or un um, or impersonal, you know, mm -hmm. um, sometimes you start, you can start with something like that and then, then your own personality and your own creativity and your own organic soulful flow start to take over and something very beautiful can come out of that. Um, so I, 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 I find myself being more okay with that as I mm -hmm. age, maybe it's because I just have fewer ideas uh, uh, spontaneously on my own. It's a way of dealing with writer's block. Well, I can't figure out what to do, what to write. So let me start with like a stupid concept and then like, you know, see what happens. Cool. So um, on your tour, are you mostly playing songs from the record or? Yeah, so we, okay, so we, we've we done two big tours with this project. Um, we did one in the States for about three weeks um, in September, right when the record came out into October. And that was with the band on the record with Aaron Parks and Joe Sanders and Brian Blade. And then um, Gabrielle and I went to... Uh, Europe for a month uh, shortly after that with um, uh, Paul Cornish is the pianist and uh, Philip Norris is the bassist. Nazir Ebo is the drummer. So this is kind of going to be our main touring band um, through throughout for this year and beyond. Um, and yes, so we're playing definitely the music from the record uh we i think we had, we pretty played pretty much all the songs on the record um we have other songs that um uh that 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 are that are in the repertoire some that fit the concept some most of them do still like um the eagles hotel california we have a version of that that we never actually oh, wow. recorded but um but we've kind of developed since then so we play that a lot and um we when we went to europe 
Gabrielle and I decided that, um, you know, we couldn't just go to Europe playing just American songs, you know, okay. and we mostly we did that. But but what, what we tried to do every night is wherever we were, um, play some song that um, might have some relationship to the place that we were. So we kind of ex started to expand the repertoire. So, um, uh, you know, now we've got got songs for yeah, from, from, from other places as well. So um, it's a work in progress. And, and I think, you know, we're going to be touring uh, a lot this year. And, um, you know, I'm sure at a certain point, we're going to start to chafe under the restrictions of the concept. Uh, I mean, the concept is fun. Um, right. You know, it's fun to like roll into a place and like play a song about the place. We can't do that everywhere. Um, not sure we can do that um, in Red Bank, but <laughs> we'll, we'll play Streets of Philadelphia. You That's know, like anything <laughs> Springsteen will do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, it's a band now and uh, it's evolving, and um, so you know, uh, I think over the in the coming weeks and the coming months, um. Uh, yeah, th things will will gradually expand the repertoire. Nice, cool. All right, so if if I could, you mentioned the twenty year old Josh. Um, <laughs> I mean, you twenty uh, something twenty year old. I was still in college. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you had like such an interesting path um, coming into jazz. I think almost unique in that. It seemed like you got a lot of. I mean, obviously, um, your father was a phenomenal jazz musician, but you got a lot of attention pretty early on um yeah. It, yeah i mean how did how did uh it was the you won the monk competition right that was a big was that a big deal? yeah yes uh and that that was a big deal um you know i mean it always it was a big deal in a well it wasn't the summer but in a in a year and a half year of big deals you know i moved to new york um i graduated uh in june of 91 and I moved to New York right after that. It was a last minute decision, basically. Uh, I, I I had been uh, applied and been accepted to law school, decided to take a year deferment, wasn't sure where I was gonna go. Turns out there was a, a, a house in Brooklyn um, with a bunch of musicians that uh, I knew uh, that I had met um, from when I was in, from the Boston area. Um, sure. And uh, they were like, come down, sleep in the living room. You know, we need help with the rent. You know, it was a nice living room. <laughs> and it was a nice house. It was in Park Slope. Uh, I think it was on 11th Street or something like that. Um, and uh, it was a, like, you know, classic brownstone. Um, and so I was like, okay, got nothing better to do. So I, I moved into that 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 house and um, you know, I was just around music for the first time in my life all the time. Cats were practicing all the time and there were jam sessions there all the time. And, you know, Brooklyn uh, still is, but especially then was a real nexus for the uh, um, locus for, 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 uh, for the jazz, young jazz community. And there was just, there was so many, um, so many musicians from my generation who were living in the area and there were always jam sessions going on. And I was going out to clubs and listening to music all the time, starting to work around town. My father started hiring me. Dewey Redmond started hiring me to play in his band. I played at the at the Vanguard with him that summer, you know, um, and uh, I think I did my first tour in maybe September of that year with like uh, with Jeff Keezer. Um, so uh, things were just starting to happen. I was starting to like, I was able to make my rent, you know, playing, 
yeah, I mean, you know, make my rent and a couple slices of pizza a night. That's all you <laughs> need, right? So it's when you New York. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like, wow, I'm doing this and I'm playing greatest music, music in the world with some of the greatest musicians in the world and I'm able to support myself and make a living. And, um, and you know, I started getting calls from... Um, you know, older musicians like Charlie Hayden and uh, uh, um, Paul Motion and Jack DeJanette. And yeah, I mean, uh, um, started to do tours with them. And yeah, um, I entered the Monk competition last minute, kind of on a whim. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up um, uh, making the semifinals and then making the finals. And yeah, I don't know what happened, but um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a big deal. Right. I mean, it's but like... So I think about, you know, the typical parents, right? So if you you went to Harvard and then you get into Yale Law School, right? And most parents would go, that seems like a pretty good path. <laughs> but yeah, up, I mean, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, but it's, you're fine. But you grew up with two, you know, two artists, right? I think your mother, a dancer. Yeah, I grew up with my mother, not with my father. Oh, um, okay. You know, my mother and father were never married, in fact. And, uh, you know, by the time I, I was born... My, my father, they met in San Francisco, um, but my father um, moved to New York, I think, in sometime in 68. And I was born in 69. And so he was already living in New York then. So I was raised solely by my mom and mm. really didn't know my father well. I knew his music well, but didn't know him well. I mean, I saw him maybe growing up 10 times, you know, like right. when he'd come to town and play. Um uh, but yes, I mean, I, 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 I kind of have a sense of where you're going with the, with the question. Um, the irony of it is like, my mom was like, yes, play music. And my father was like, you're crazy, boy. <laughs> Can you, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and, and I mean, but it makes sense, right? Because he was living the life and had lived the life and, you know, um, he is a music. You know, I mean, I, I'm biased, of course, but I think he's one of the great tenor saxophonists in jazz. And you know, he has. I mean, he was. Uh, you know, he has the utmost respect and admiration, and um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, of, of of his peers. And I mean, you know, people. Um, you know, he 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 was a musician that the music community held in such high regard and high esteem. Um, and yet he struggled to uh, make ends meet, always, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I remember the first time that I went to go see him in New York and he lived in the same apartment in, um, in, uh, in Brooklyn. Um, it was, I think, near the Church Avenue. I can't remember the, the name of the neighborhood. Um, the Church Avenue stop in in, in Brooklyn. Um, he lived in the, that same apartment um, his entire life in, in New York. Um, saw the whole neighborhood change. But um, I remember going there, and he was, you know, going up to the. It was like a five floor walk up or whatever. Going up to the uh, apartment, and he was like, "Hang, hang on, uh, I'll be back." you know, and he was gone for like an hour and a half and he came back and he had a saxophone with him. And I was like, oh, where'd you go? He was like, oh, I went to the pawn shop. I had to go get my saxophone out of the pawn shop. So like yeah. he would like go on, he would like go on the road and like, you know, make a little bread and then get off the road. And, you know, at a certain point have to like 
put his corn in the pawn shop to buy some bread, literally to buy some bread, right? You know, right. Um, and this was a regular thing for him, you know? So he, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but like he, he, um, he had an album called The Struggle Continues and the, and the struggle was real for him. So I think like, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the thing that he, like his mantra or or his motto or whatever, like the thing that he stood firm on was like, he's, I only play the music that I want to play with the musicians I want to play it with. So he would never take, he would never do something that he didn't believe in 100% musically. And I think he felt, and I think he's right, that he probably paid an economic price for that, you know? Um, and uh, um, so I think when he found out that I was, you know, making a choice to like pursue music, the first, the, the logical um, reaction was like, no, like this life is too hard. You don't want to do this. Like you've, you know, like you like go for the, 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 the stability. Right. <laughs> um, but I think at the same time, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for him, uh, but I think that he was probably, I mean, I was, I made the choice that he made in a way, you know, he could have chosen other things. He was, a, he was edu highly educated. He was, a, he was a teacher, you know, um, uh, and uh, he chose to, to leave Texas and moved to San Francisco and drove a cab, cab in San Francisco for years, like playing on the San Francisco scene, you know? Um, so yeah. Uh, but my mom was like, screw, screw law school, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So is there like, uh, so I've had on this, I've asked a couple of people, I've had like Grant Green Jr. on here and Eric Mingus Jr. Eric Mingus, uh, George Coleman Jr. So um, being the son of a, a known a jazz musician, um, is there, how does that, does that change for you? Is it like, does it open doors or does it make things a little more difficult? How, did, how does it, how do you handle that? Or how did you handle that? You know, I can't, I can't say, you know, it's like people, it's like, this isn't the first time I've been asked this question. It's hard to answer. Like, does it make it more difficult? It's like, I don't know. It is what it is. I mean, obviously it opened doors, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, Charlie Hayden called me to play with him. Like, you know, uh, after I've been in New York for a few months, I don't think that would have happened if I wasn't, you know, one of his best friend's sons. Okay. Like, you know, for my, my father hired me to play in his band, you know, um, you know, he didn't just, he just didn't, didn't just let me play in his band. He even like paid me something like, you know, that's nepotism, right? Like, you know, I'm being slightly facetious, but, yeah. but of course it opened doors, you know, and, and of course having, um, you know, my father's name, I mean, uh, Yes, I mean that that, that it's unquestionable advantage. You know, I mean, my my life has been full of advantages, also a lot of disadvantage. You know, I grew up very, you know, materially. My mom was on welfare my, my the entire time she was raising raising me. You know, I I didn't we didn't have anything like from a from a financial or material standpoint. Um, but um, yes, I mean the opportunities because I was my father's son for sure. You know, probably huge benefits of the doubt. You know, it's like, yeah, he sounds like shit, but like, you know, maybe someday he's gonna be looking at his dad. You know, I don't know. Um, but you know, I I think that a lot of people 
assume that, oh, well, it must have been this incredible pressure, like to live up to your father's, you know, like um, that, that, you know, like the standards they set or the legacy. And I mean, yes, if I think about it that way, but it, it's strange, like I never really did. I mean, of course I knew who my father was and idolized him and loved his music and, um, uh, uh, of course I, I mean, he, he, he was, he's one of the standards, uh, musical standards that I aspired to, but I never kind of felt like, oh, I'm, uh, like I'm continuing some sort of legacy or that I'm, I never even thought, oh, I'm doing it because my father is doing it. I know that sounds weird, but it just, it was never like, it was just like, oh, my father played the saxophone. Oh, I play the saxophone too. I like, I like to play the saxophone too. Maybe I'll do that. You know, <laughs> like, it was just like, oh, it's a coincidence. Of course, sure, sure. of course it's not a coincidence, but like somehow, like I tricked myself, maybe like consciously, I still don't, it's like it's it's almost like like oh Dewey Reverend's your father that must have been that must be a lot to live up to but like for me it's no even sitting here now it's no difference the fact that Dewey Redman is a great saxophonist that whose music I admire and adore and aspire to it's no difference that he is than that Sonny Rollins is or that John Coltrane is or that Stan Getz is or Dexter Gordon or Joe Henderson or Ben Webster or Lester or all my other idols. It's not like they're not my father. They're, they're, they're as much my father as my father is in a way. Like, you know, so it's like, yeah, it's hard to be a saxophonist. It's hard to be a jazz musician, you know, with all those greats, you know, <laughs> like it's a lot of, it's a lot on your shoulders, but it's all of our shoulders, right? I mean, that's, that's the nature of great art, yeah. great achievement. Oh, I, I understand. I mean, yeah. I mean, every time I look at this, I see Ray Brown, I see yeah. Charles, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, you know, you got, you, you know, it's not, it's not like, yeah, it's, I, I, it's not like some special cross I had to bear or some special burden, you know? So I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I I would say you know it's just been an advantage. Um, although I think there is something. There's something okay. Like when I started playing with my father, um, you know, I was young. I mean, I guess I could kind of get around the horn, kind of. I had a certain flow, like I could get like ideas came quickly. I could kind of like you know, maybe tell an inter somewhat interesting story, engaging story as an improviser. I don't know, it's hard to say. Um, but like, like, like having to play after my father every night, it was just like, after he played, like just the depth and the weight and the power of that sound and the, 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 um, the love and the, the 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 beauty that the angst the anguish the poignancy the vulner the strength of vulnerability everything that that was in that his sound and in particular in the blues quality of expression that he had mm -hmm. that sound um it was almost like it it just like every like whatever I played just was um it was like it was like you know those like 
the, like those really the cheap sprinkles that you put on ice cream, you know, <laughs> like like it was just like it, it meant nothing, like because like it was just the weight of that of that sound and 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 that quality of blues expression, and mm -hmm. that is something that I feel um, is at has always been at the heart and soul of jazz for me, and and maybe all great music or all great. Much, much great music um and uh it's always been something that i felt um i didn't have the access to that i wished i would have you know yeah. um and it's been a, it's been a source of uh of so much inspiration uh and revelation but it's also been a mystery for me like how can i get closer to that whatever that is um and i think over time i have little by little gotten closer to that but i think there was something about you know because i feel like that is my that that's one of the things that like made my father as great as he was and it's one of the things that i've always felt like i i maybe lacked what not lacked it completely but lacked like didn't have enough of it um and so that that maybe that juxtaposition is like oh that's my father and he's got that and i don't have that and how do i get closer to that and you know maybe part of it was getting closer to him and um i don't know I'm still figuring it out i do feel like i have it more now than i did but it's not it's yeah um, right i got no where i mean I think we're always searching, right? As yeah. jazz musicians specifically, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, you know, like it seems like it was a pretty organic shift for you, and uh, and then you're like, and then I don't think enough is made out of uh, like the early '90s, but we're like a really pretty amazing time for jazz, and you were kind of like right in that scene. Uh -huh. um, could you just talk about that time period? Because I think you you have all these great musicians coming up, as as always seems to happen, but. Also, a lot of the legends are still very much around, and uh, you were kind of intertwined with both. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was an incredible time, you know, um, because uh, there, you know, there was. I mean, especially in New York, there were, you know, there were so many clubs, so many places to play, so many places to go out and hear music. Um, there were, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there was a generation of jazz musicians that was kind of, um, you know, very committed to um uh you know kind of learning and 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 playing um the 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 music um uh in uh in a, in, a, in a kind of mode of expression that um uh, was very much rooted in the 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 um the standards and the um uh, the values, I guess, of kind of like the acoustic jazz mainstream, um, you know, whatever that means, <laughs> you know. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, there was, the, uh, and then there were, there were great, you know, so many of the, of the giants of that, that, um, so many of the great practitioners of that art were still around, you know. I mean, I, I, I consider myself, like, like, I just think about drummers, like, um, you know, I was, a, I, I was able, I, I had a chance to play with Elvin Jones, and Jack DeJanette, and Billy Higgins, and Roy Haynes, and 
Ben Riley and Tootie Heath um, and Paul Motion. You know, I mean, I that's you know, I had a chance to play with so many of the great drummers from I mean everyone's got their own golden era right but for us like the golden era of jazz was like the 60s right you know I mean but like but like that 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 kind of that kind of there was kind of a transgenerational bond I mean it's still there but mm -hmm. um but maybe it's not there as much the thing is like like those musicians were there and they were they were playing and they were they were and they were you could go out and hear them and then you there were also opportunities to go and actually play with them whether they hired you for their group or whether you were doing a record date together there was so much happening um there was there was a lot of work you know there was a lot of recording work there was a lot of um uh gig work you know there were a lot of tours um and so that was special i mean it was incredible for me to be you know, a part of the generation, you know, Roy Hargrove and Christian McBride and Brad Meldow and Brian Blade and, and Greg Hutchinson. And, you know, I mean, all of these um, incredible musicians, um, you know, they're now icons of the music, right? Um, but like I, Nicholas Payton, you know, uh, I mean, I, I feel like uh, I learned everything that I know from getting to Kurt Rosenwinkel, Mark Turner. I mean, you know, I can keep, I, you know, there, there's yeah. so many, but like, I, I was lucky, you know, these were, these were the musicians that, um, this was my generation and they were my teachers, you know, they were also my friends. <laughs> so, yeah. That's good company to have for sure. Yeah. And then it's like, and then, I mean, even with all those names, it, you're, you like kind of your first record and your subsequent records. I mean, they were popular right off the bat, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know. Um, so how did you get like hooked up with Warner Brothers and were you like surprised by like the level of success you got so early on? Yeah, I was very I was I'm still surprised by it. I don't know what happened. You know, <laughs> some, some deal, some 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 sordid <laughs> deal was made in some back room somewhere. <laughs> You're really good records, man. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, with Warner Brothers, I mean, you know, I, 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 that happened, that came out of the competition because I actually, the irony was that, um, I mean, maybe it's a, a bit of a, a little, a little kind of historical loop was closed. Um, I was actually, I had a demo deal from Blue Note sitting on my dresser drawer. Um, mm -hmm. like Bruce Lundvall was going to sign me to, to a demo deal and I just didn't get around to signing it. And then I went, went to the competition and after the competition, of course, there was a lot of interest from a lot of labels. And, um, I just struck up, you know, Matt Pearson, who was uh, young, he had been at Blue Note before, but had gone to, gone on to, um, kind of do a and at, at Warner Brothers. Um, you know, we just, uh, we, 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 uh, you know, we 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 had a good relationship, and it just seemed like an interesting place for me to be. And they didn't Warner didn't really have a lot going on with 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 jazz, uh, at least not acoustic jazz at the time, and 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 younger jazz musicians. Um, so it was a risk, but it seemed like oh, this could be you know not not big fish in a small pond, but like maybe <laughs> yeah, just like there weren't as many fish there. So it okay. seemed like, oh, you know, and I like the thing is, I was just like, I still thought I was going to go to law school, right? You know, so I was just like, yeah, this is all, why? I mean, it didn't even feel like a gamble. It didn't even feel like rolling the dice. It's just like, yeah, this is cool. Like, let's, right. let's go. 
you know, there was a certain kind of like nonchalance, maybe some of that is youth, uh, a certain ignorance, maybe even a certain hubris. I mean, I, I'm not, uh, as you can probably tell, I'm not like the most overly confident person. <laughs> um, but, uh, or, you know, but like, there was, like, I've always been super self-deprecating, you know, but there was a kind of sense of like, I don't know, uh, yeah, just kind of like it does like this is all fun, right? It's so much fun. Like yeah, that yeah. was like music has always been fun for me. Like that's always like it's it was never the thing that was serious. Like, you know, it was never the thing that I was serious about. Don't get me wrong, I'm very serious about it now. But like, but for me, music was always an escape from that stuff. So and and at that time it was just like I didn't plan to do this. I didn't really work hard hard for this i mean i love the music and i've listened deeply to the music but like this is just so much fun so let's have some fun yeah <laughs> let's make a record <laughs> records it's crazy all right cool man um so what did i miss anything else you want people to know um, um I, I don't know i mean i'm just just i just feel super lucky blessed fortunate just grateful to be able to to do this and to have been able to do this for so long to do it with with some of the best who have ever done it and um i'm still having fun so no law school in the future oh god <laughs> i mean you know I, I i now it's a little more serious because i realize that i literally suck at everything else you know <laughs> so like there's there's no way i can't imagine doing anything else with my life so so um so it's time to get scared i think yep yeah. So it's still fun. Still having fun with it. For sure. Cool, man. Josh, it was nice meeting you. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks for the time, Jay. I appreciate nice. it. I appreciate you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on the show, at the show. I hope so. Yeah. Take, care, right. Take care. All right, cats. There you have it. There's my interview with Josh Redman. And again, be sure to check out his record, Where Are We? Blue Notes Records. And see him at the Count Basie Center for the Arts, the Vogel Theater on February 9th in Red Bank, New Jersey. Now, it's been a while since I've had a regular season episode, as you've known. Please be sure to tune in February 1st. We start our new season, The Music of 1966. All right, together let's keep this wonderful music alive. Speak to you soon. Have a wonderful day. Peace. Peace.